here we are then. This is number five of the second series of Way Up Course. And you'll see from the schedule there that the uh, theme tonight is What Must I Do? Uh, that comes, in fact, from Acts 16, 25 to 30, uh, where the jailer, who is suddenly faced with a dramatic situation where the, the, an earthquake has occurred in the prison and all the prisoners are free, but they've not gone. I mean, there must have been an awesome sense of, of something happening here among all of them. And if I take it up in verse 25 of Acts 16, it goes, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to. I love it. These Christians were irrepressible. They weren't saying, oh, another fine mess you got me into. <laughs> you know, how did I get into this kind of jam? They're praying, and they're singing hymns, and the other prisoners are listening, and suddenly there is such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. This was not just any ordinary earthquake. But wow, whatever angel was doing this was really causing some mayhem. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. It's great, isn't it? There is something really holy going on in this apparently um, unpromising environment. And the jailer called for lights, he rushed in, he fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and he then brought them out and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And we're going to try and answer that uh, question tonight. Now, it may well be that some are watching this and some of you here tonight are already Christians and believers. You may say, well, this is not totally relevant to me. But one of the things I've often discovered when talking to Christians is that when it comes to actually telling somebody how to become a Christian, they're often not that confident. So I'm hoping that we can put it down to some fairly simple steps that make it understandable and that you can kind of act as pegs in your head. You don't have to do what I'm going to do tonight because I might take a, several minutes to, take, to go through this. You don't have to do that. But nonetheless, if you can get the pegs and hold them and then fill them in with your own content, I think it does help and gives you more confidence if ever you get the possibility, the the, the opportunity to lead someone to Christ, to point somebody in the way, and that is such a privilege and a joy. Okay, what must I do to be saved, then, is the question tonight, and the answer is not a lot. Uh, but there is a little bit. Uh, you do have to take the life belt when it's thrown to you. And it's really about receiving the life belt and the, 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 it seems to me the Bible has to deal with, and that's what we're going to try and follow through tonight in a series of, uh, of what I, I feel are, are pretty simple steps. So I say, if you forget everything else, if you can try and remember, we've got five steps this evening uh, to become a Christian. The, perhaps not. Some of them overlap a bit. Some of them maybe are more critical and so on than others, and we'll try and point that out as we go along. But number one is repentance. We'll look at that first. Number two is belief. Uh, number three is trust. Split those two up because often, you know, people say, well, I believe, I believe, but then often fail to actually act on that and step out from that and then wonder why their life doesn't really take off and get going. Number four is obedience. And number five I put in as baptism. 
Uh, okay, well, let's take those one at a time then. Uh, repentance, first of all. You'll see the, the, the guy, the pro, somewhat unprepossessing guy sitting here in the middle of a pigsty, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you where that comes from, but it's Luke 15 and verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, Jesus said. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So we do, it, it sounds a right, somewhat assertive young man, doesn't he? Uh, quite modern in some senses. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. You, you get the feeling it didn't take him long. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him in his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, and you've noticed this is not a deeply emotional moment for him, he's saying, I'm an idiot. What am I doing here? You know, I could be a servant with my dad and be considered. <laughs> considerably better off than I am in this pigsty. So he said, how many of my father's hired men of food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called you. And this is really quite, you know, it's quite emotional. It's quite cold, really. Um... And uh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Well, you know what happened. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And what did the son say? Well, at last I'm home. No, he didn't. He did his speech. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But of course the father then welcomed him in and so on and so on. That was Jesus' own, one of the major parables of Jesus to illustrate what it means to be repentant. Uh, the guy in a, in a far country comes to his senses and he says, I'm going home. And that is the beginning. It's when I, I don't want to be where I am, I need to go home. I mean, in Mark 1, verse 14 to 15, Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God and saying, repent and believe the good news. So right the way through the New Testament, you get this message. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached it. The disciples preached it. Repent, 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 repent. What does it mean? Well, here's a bit of Greek. Uh, anybody read that? Some, well, I know. Metanoia. Uh, it's the Greek word, and it simply means to change your mind. The Greek word for repentance. So, I mean, you may, you may shed tears, you may be grief-stricken, you know, you may be an emotional heap, you might suddenly see all your past revealed before you, but, but simply the word means to change your mind. You, you go in, you, and, it, and it's not just you change your mind, with that it was your whole outlook, your whole worldview, your whole orientation. It changed your direction. I was going that way, I'm not going to go that way, I'm going to turn around and go that way. So it's a, it's a will word. It's, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to walk in a different way to the way... That is the key. God needs that before he can even begin 
in our lives. Unless I'm willing to turn around and change and change the, the, the way that my life is orientated, uh, then uh, there's no, there cannot be a beginning. That's why it seems to me that is so important. And uh, you'll remember the problem in Isaiah 53. We've already looked at that in verse uh, 6, where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Frank Sinatra made it a virtue, and I did it my way. You know, I wonder if he went, uh, went, uh, went up to the, the, final, the final appointment with his destiny, singing, I did it my way. I'm not sure. Uh, but that's our, that is our, the Bible says that's our problem. We all want to do it our way. There is this strong uh, self thing. And as we said earlier in the course, we, we start it from very young. You know, a, a small baby, any parent will say a small baby can have a massive will. You know, you, you think, how, how does that little bundle have such a powerful determination to, to get what they want to get? Um, and uh, we're born with it, that's the thing. We're not born loving, kind, thoughtful for anybody. Our life revolves around us. And we accept that, we understand that. Part of the job of parenting is to try, seek to train their children. But you can't, you can't train it out of us. You know, you can't breed it out of us. We, we still got it. Uh, the only way that we can do it is by a miracle that only God can do, and he can only do it if we begin to say, I don't want to be like that anymore. I've got, I want to turn around. I want to walk in. That's what happened to that uh, young man there. Well, now, what does it involve, uh, repentance? Uh, David Pawson, whom some of you may have heard about, wrote, wrote a book many years ago now, The Normal Christian Birth. And it was quite provocative because he suggested that many Christians were not well-born. It's an interesting thought, you know, that we hadn't properly repented, we hadn't properly trusted, you know, we were kind of half, half-baked disciples. And I suppose if I reflect on it through the years, I've, I've recognized that not everybody is the same. There are some people who come to the kingdom and begin to follow Jesus and they're on fire almost from the beginning. Other folk seem to struggle and struggle and struggle. I can't always tell why one's different to the other, but certainly I can accept what he says, that we're not always well-born. So what does repentance involve for us? Well, if you, uh, if you want to, turn with me, but otherwise I shall read it anyway. Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, which gives quite a lot of instruction about what, I, I think, some of the content, what it might mean to repent. You know, you change the orientation of your life, but what, what kind of practical ways might that work out? Well, Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus and he was the chief tax collector and was wealthy probably dishonest and, you know, a traitor to his country and all sorts of things as well. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, I mean, that must have been such a shock, wasn't it? I mean, he's, he's up there in a tree. Whoever is going to notice him up in a tree? Uh, and uh, Z- Jesus looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Boy, here was a man that was right on the edge. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now. I mean, this is an amazing transformation. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. 
And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to slave what was lost. Now you could make a list out of that of the sort of things that might be necessary for a person that is wanting to repent and give their life over to the Lord. First of all, we have to be a bit specific. You know, if we confess in our sins to the Lord, we may need to enumerate them, particularly if there are some that rise to the surface. I would always say to somebody, if you're going to be repenting, you know, what, what, you know, and somebody says, you, you're, you're guilty. What is the first thing that's going to rise up in your head? You can't do everything, you know, instantly. And for me, certainly, repentance has been an ongoing process, really, as more stuff gets revealed to us as we go along the way. But you may need to confess specific sins to God. You may need to stop making excuses for yourself. I mean, that is such a liberating thing when you just don't have to pretend anymore. And you say, thank you, Lord, I'm, I'm loved, forgiven and accepted and that's it. I know that I'm a sinner, but I'm redeemed. You know, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm lost, but I've been found. So stop making excuses to myself. Ask forgiveness from enemies. Now, I must say, when I became a Christian, I was only nearly 14 years old, and I didn't have, as far as I knew, I didn't have many enemies. I didn't have many people that I thought were deeply upset or anything like that. But as I went through my life, I realized that I did, I did do some stuff that I felt ashamed of. And I remember going on a, on, a, on a conference and the guy was talking about this very thing. And I'll never forget, I mean, he said, you know, have you got people in your past that you feel that you've wronged and you've never put that right? And, uh, and I'm sitting there thinking, and immediately a girl came into my mind. I'd broken up with my girlfriend for, that was not Debbie, of course. Never broken up with Debbie. Uh, but I, I broke up with my girlfriend that I've been going with for some years. So it was a kind of bit of a vacuum in my life. And, um, and I met this other girl, at a, a Christian girl. And, uh, and I thought, she, I think she likes me. You know, you get that feeling, don't you? I think she likes me. Uh, and I thought, I thought to myself, well, I could, I could do with somebody to go out with. And I can remember, you know, you make these decisions in a flash. And so within a, a very short part, we've kind of paired up and become a couple. Almost as soon as I'd done it, I thought, oh, I'm wrong here. You know, I never, I never, I tried never to go out with any girl that I didn't think I would marry. And I knew that I would never thought I'd marry her. I was just filling in time. Terrible, isn't it? And, uh, and at this meeting, I mean, I must have been in my early 30s, that girl came back to me. I still knew how to contact her. And the guy said, if somebody comes into your mind, you've probably uh, got to try and do something to make that right, to do something about it. I mean, Debbie knew about it at the time. Um, we were in our first church. And so I wrote, I wrote a letter to her and apologized and asked her if she would be willing to forgive me for the fact that I felt I'd mistreated her and I'd used her. Because, I mean, it, it got worse. Because, I mean, when, when, when I said I'm going to split up, we only went out for a month. I said, we're going to split up. And she said, she, said, she said, why? What have I done? I said, no, nothing. She said, what's wrong with me? And then I started trying to tell her. That was a very big mistake. Chaps, if ever you're in that position, don't go there. <laughs> but, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be honest. I'm trying to give a reason. I'm trying to not sort of leave her completely. But it didn't help, did it? You know, so, so I left her wounded. And I, I 
far as I know, I think she was wounded for quite a long time. So I felt really bad about that. And the Lord laid it on my heart. And so I'm just saying that, that sometimes there are times in your life when, when God brings things to your heart and you think, I've got to do something about that. And that may well be part of it. And sometimes you can't get free of a thing unless you've actually dealt with it adequately. Well, I mean, it, this is what Zacchaeus is. He's sorted it all out. He's going back to people that you know, that he cheated and giving back money and giving to the poor and seeking to put right the wrongs in his life. So putting right whatever you can put right in your life is all part of it. So a, a wholehearted repentance. I'm turning around, living a new life, living in a new way. I can't start my new life properly unless I let go of the old one. That's the first thing. Second one, belief. Uh, Acts 13, uh, 16, 31, the passage that we already read, he said, uh, um, oh, let me, I'm going to check it out. Let me just check it out. Verse, verse 31 uh, of Acts 16, yeah, that's right. He, he said, what must I do to be saved, which is the question we started with. And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So it's pretty simple. This is why, in a sense, we don't have to be too, you know, pedantic about the steps that we have to take. I've given you five steps tonight, but I mean, you, in, a, in, a, in a heat situation, you might only make one of them. I mean, here's Peter's preaching in the prison. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You know, I mean, the guy then later gets baptized and all sorts of things follow from that. But you can see uh, that he's not, he's not laid it out specifically. So you don't want to get too uh, strung up about that. But belief then is number two. Question then, what, what must I believe? If I'm going to believe, well, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus. So that's probably a pretty good start. Uh, now you say, well, what do I believe about the Lord Jesus? Well, you believe that he lived. And I've hopefully, I've spent the, most of the course trying to go through all this, trying to confirm these things, trying to say that it's in the Bible, it's in the Word of God, but it's not only there, you can find evidence of it strewn through history, you can find um, archaeology, you can find all sorts of evidence to the truthfulness of these things. That, that he lived, that he died for us, again we did that a couple of weeks ago, that he rose from the dead, that he is alive today. Um, and that he is returning. I, I would say, that, in other words, that the essence uh, of what we need to believe if we are to become a follower of Jesus is that he's there, that he's alive, that we can know him, that we can talk to him. You can't follow a dead memory. Or, you, you know, you can't follow somebody that was 2,000 years ago. End of story. So we follow one that is, has risen and is alive and is here now and, uh, and goes before us. Uh, and, that it, and it all comes back to the resurrection. Interestingly, while we're on that, that's the garden tomb there, of course, as you know. And as we said earlier in the course, certainly my own conviction is that that is actually the tomb. There's, a, there's another big place, the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. But uh, for what it's worth, I, I think that this is the right one. This is the place. There's lots of evidence, including a huge, great rolling stone buried quite nearby that was part of the worship of the early church. Another thing that is there is that, that iron spike that you can see in that, that blown up picture. You can, I've actually seen that spike there. I mean, it's very interesting on, a, on an even closer up one. That's the hole where it is. That spike is the original spike that was used to seal the tomb and hold the rolling stone in place so that it couldn't be opened. That has been banged into the rock and somehow cemented or wedged in. It will not move. And it has been sheared through. I mean, that is very interesting. It has not, uh, you know, nobody's sawn it. It has been, it has been sheared. Uh, 
and it's been estimated that to go through an iron spike like that would take about 60 tonnes of pressure. The Bible says an angel rolled the stone away, <laughs> and there it is. So, you know, I'm all the time looking for confirmatory stuff, but, but we have to decide, do I believe it? You know, it's our privilege, you know. Every step along the way, I can say, do I believe it? Would I repent? Am I willing to go that far? Am I or am I not? Um, do I, am I willing to believe that? How far do I believe it? And so on and so on. Um, and it's surprising how much unbelief there is, even among Christians, how much kind of cynicism there is. Uh, but uh, certainly that's number two. Number three, trust. Now, this again, I think, is pivotal in the process. That is the, that is the step that sorts out the men from the boys, if I can put it in that way. Because um, uh, loads of people will say, I believe. Yeah, I, I believe in God. I believe, I believe there's something there. That's the sort of favorite thing that people say. Many people say, well, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I do believe. So it's quite easy to say. And of course, the Bible says that the devil believes. So believing is not, you know, it's important, but it's not the end of it. It's got, to, it's got to go further than that. It, and uh, So I've broken that down into trust. I think the Bible probably says that, trust in the Lord with all your heart and so on. There's loads of passages, but, it, uh, but within, the, within the Greek language, within the original language, the word believing, particularly believing in something or believing in somebody, carries the whole weight of trust. You just don't, it's not just a head thing, not just an, an intellectual thing, it's something that involves your whole life. I put the picture, the picture of that young girl there on the edge of the swimming pool because it, it reminded me of my own uh, swimming exploits when I was a youth. I was not a very good swimmer. I could just about swim a width. I used to make more splash and less movement than virtually anybody else in the pool. It was a mystery to me how they managed to do so little splashing and make so much progress in the pool. And I think the fact that I was not very competent meant that I always stayed in where I could get my feet on the floor, in the pool. You know, as I grew taller, I could go deeper, but it was always, it was always a bit of a limit on how far I could go in the pool. And somebody said to me, they said, you know, part of your trouble is you need to get into the deep water. The, the water supports you and holds you up. And, uh, and I thought, yeah, they're right. I, mean, I don't know whether they are right, but I mean, I thought they're right. I'm going to do that. So I climbed down the steps very gingerly in the sort of nine-foot length end of the swimming pool, and there I'm on the edge of the thing. I'm thinking to myself, now all I've got to do is let go. I could swim. I could swim a width. You know, it was no... The water's going to hold me up, and I believed it. Do you know, I found I could not actually let go of it. And I realized at that moment, that is really the difference between believing it and trusting it. And you can't... You'll never be a swimmer if you, if you sit on the edge of the pool hanging on the side, will you? You know what I mean? Kind of like, like that. Where are you going to go? I mean, I've known some. I mean, they actually, do, they do swim all around the edge of the pool for that reason. So at least they do let go of the side, but they swim all the way around the edge of the pool because they think, I do not want to get out there in the deep water. And I, that was a real lesson for me. I'm okay now. That has been conquered. Thank you, Lord. Uh, but that then is that leads me then to the, um, uh, the the third step that we need to take. And in Matthew 14, you, you've got a, a situation that is considerably more difficult than being in a nice um, a nice swimming pool, where they're out there on the Sea of Galilee. In verse 22 of Matthew uh, 14, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. And while he dismissed the crowd, and after he had dismissed them, 
he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. It must have been. Several hours must have gone. It was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Because you all know the Sea of Galilee is like a bowl and the winds can come howling into that uh, sea and, uh, and be pretty fearsome storms. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. There's Peter. He will always open his big mouth, won't he? Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Oh, you of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? We know that story well. And I suppose if anything illustrates the way that the Lord is wanting his disciples to step out, uh, this is it. In fact, we often talk about stepping out of the boat, don't we, as an expression of faith. To me, that is the key. That is the key point, whatever that means. And of course, one of the, the key ways that you can actually do that is baptism. When I used to uh, counsel young disciples and sometimes older disciples uh, that were wanting to be baptized and uh, sort of make a public confession of their faith, I would often say to them, this is your first, first trust step. You're out there you're in front of everybody, you're vulnerable. You know, I used to get them to sit, give a little word of testimony. They say, well, I can't give a word of testimony. I said, yes, you can. Jesus died for you. Surely you can say a few words for him. Not that I'm putting any pressure on him or anything like that, but, you know, it seemed to me to be only fair, really, that we'd be willing to do that. So baptism, I think God, it's a God in his mercy has provided every new believer with a specific thing to do to demonstrate where they are. How good is that? You know, and I certainly found when I was baptised as a timid 14-year-old uh, or just under 14-year-old, it, it kick-started me into my Christian life, serving the Lord. And I've seen that happen to one after another. We're still on trust because I think this is such an important start, such an important step. Uh, that's a, a photograph of Charles Blondin. I mean, it's obviously a bit grainy, uh, not very HD, because he, he did this in 1859. He was the first man to walk across Niagara Falls uh, on a high wire. It wasn't actually a high wire, it was a whopping great big rope. It was apparently three inch diameter hemp rope stretched a thousand feet more uh, across Niagara Falls. The first time, he, he did it several times actually, through 1859 to 1860. The first time he did it, there were 100,000 people that had come there to see it. I mean, we are fascinated, aren't we, by, by daredevils and by people doing stuff like this. And he did, I mean, through, I think he did it, as I say, a number of times, and each time trying to get a bit of a new twist on it. So he, did, he wheelbarrowed over it, and he, you know, he, he, uh, he, he, he apparently took a cooker uh, in a wheelbarrow and cook something on the on the cooker halfway across in the middle. Uh, you know, he did he did the most outrageous thing. But for for me, the key thing was was um, uh, was this one uh, when he carried a man across, and the story of how that came to be is quite interesting because he he 
he'd done one of his famous crossings uh, across the water and he came to the other side and all the people were gathered there and he said, now do you think I could do it? They said, yeah. Uh, he said, uh, do you think I could go back the other way? Yeah. Do you think I could carry somebody on my back? Yeah. He said, who's going to volunteer? <laughs> Silence. And, uh, and he looked around the crowd and said, would you like to come across? No, uh, oh, no thank you. And uh, another one, would you like to come across? He went through the crowd and, and, and none of them were willing to do it. And then he saw standing in the crowd his manager, the guy that as I suppose was looking after his bookings and things like that, a guy called Harry Colcord. And he said, Harry, would you come back with me? And Harry said, yes, I will. And so he carried this bloke. I mean, you just imagine that. Okay, this is extreme. This is extreme trust. But it's very interesting. It, it does show the, the sort of difference there is between simply affirmation and actually putting your life in it. And that seems to me is what trust is all about. Uh, and in Acts 16, that passage that we read several times already, um, it was believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. If you believe in somebody, then you will trust them. Jesus said, follow me, come follow me. And, and that, that seems, that's part of the package, that's what it goes with. So to be, a, to be a disciple is somebody that is actually willing to launch out into the unknown in following Jesus. Okay, now what about that in daily life? Some of you will recognise that's the house. Uh, that we built here, I don't know, about a dozen years ago now, from our, taken from our back garden. And I put it up there really to remind me that for me, certainly, although I suppose I was called to live a faith life for, uh, as a pastor for many years, um, retiring didn't end that. In fact, it just it increased it. It brought more opportunities for it. And people say, well, how do you manage to build a house? You must be very clever. I say, no, we're not. I mean, my son's probably cleverer than I am, but neither of us were qualified builders or anything like that. And we learned stuff as we went along, and I was a bit DIY. I mean, this was a bit extreme DIY, admittedly. Um, but uh, but the, the whole point was really that, that if they say to me, well, how did you do it? And I say, the, the, the only answer I come up with is faith. We were willing to step into the unknown. We were willing to go and live on a piece of land in a... In a, in a little camper and then a, a caravan. And uh, we were willing to try and learn and start and uh, dig foundations and do the stuff because we believed that God would be with us and would help us and would overrule in it. And so for that for me has been a black cloth of my life. There's been a joy really uh, through the years. So um, I would say that to, to, live, to live trustfully before God, we've got to embrace adventure. And I mean, what's bad about that? Isn't that good? Don't we all long for adventure? I mean, I sit in my armchair looking at other people having adventures and I think, actually, I want to do that. I want to, I want to adventure. I want to do things. I want to do deeds. And we, I mean, we're all at different levels, aren't we? We all have different... But for all of us, there is an adventure. There is a step to take. There's somebody who takes me out of my comfort zone and it seems to me that we, that is part of the, of the trustful life, part of the faith life. It means I've got to confront my fears. I mean, I find as I'm getting older, my fears are increasing. Is that natural? Probably. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I remember we built a scaffolding to take down a high tree um, in our land, and Debbie's standing at the front saying, oh, Bob, don't go up there, don't go up there. And I'm thinking, I must go up there. If a man has to do what a man has to do. 
You, you know what I mean? You, 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 you have to do it. It's because we're just, you know, now I mean, I know there's all sorts of spiritual applications, and I'm not wanting to leave those out, but it seems to me that anxiety is like a poison. It eats into our souls if we let it. So we need to stand against it, really. And whatever is the challenge that I'm afraid of, it might be something quite simple. Whatever it is, I need to identify it and speak it and say, do I need to be afraid of that? Now, I don't want, to, I don't want you to all go out being silly now. Don't. don't. <laughs> <laughs> but however, but, but you will know where, where your next piece of challenge is. There will always be a challenge that you can take. Otherwise, I will sit on my laurels and, and go old, grow old and die in bed. I don't really want to do that. Okay. I mean, I'm growing old, but there you go. I don't want to die in bed anyway. So confront our fears. Trust for finances and things like that. I remember, sorry I'm using my own experiences, but I can't really quote anybody else, can I? <laughs> Um, but uh, I remember years ago when we were, we, I was a pastor of a church in London at the time and a guy came um, speaking of the work of God behind the Iron Curtain and uh, how pastors out there were, you know, poverty stricken. Some of them had got, got parishes of multitudes of churches, you know, 50 mile sort of radius of things and they got a bicycle to go around on and they really, they were really trying to fund these guys to get them cars so they could do it. And I'm sitting there thinking, I've got a car. And, uh, and, and, I, and the Lord said to me, well, you've also got the money for the next car. You know, I, w- I was always saving up for my next car, you know, and you haven't got huge amounts of money. In those days, you know, cars were quite expensive. They're cheaper now. The insurance costs a fortune, but the cars are cheaper. Uh, but in those days, a car was quite a, quite a thing. And I'd, I'd saved up 700 pounds for my next car. And the Lord said to me, you've got 700 pounds. I said, well, yeah. He said, could you give some of that away? I said, I could. I thought, how much is he wanting? And it straight into my head came 500 pounds. I thought, Lord, that's all my money for my next car. And I felt they would say, well, your, your car's going all right. What's up with you? <laughs> anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, the Lord just did that and we did it and, uh, and we just had less savings. However, the next time that I needed a car, somebody gave me a car. In fact, I reflected on it, and the next three cars I had were all given to me by somebody. I can't remember after that. I think I did eventually buy a car, but I more than got, I more than got paid back. For and It seems to me that, you know, no matter what stage we're in, whatever we have, is, we're stewards of it. It's available. So to, to follow Jesus means making it all available to him, whatever he wants and seeking his face and seeking his guidance for it. Uh, what about embarrassment? I, I put that last because I think that is my weakest area. I mean, when I first started speaking, I was so nervous at the idea of being in front of people. I can remember um, there was a, I was in this church where, where I'd grown up and they asked me to take the service. You know, I was only about 20. I'd never done anything like that before and I'm standing in this pulpit and, uh, and I thought, oh, I'm absolutely shaking like a leaf. And, uh, and I thought, I know, I'll hold the pulpit. Um, and then the pulpit started shaking, so that didn't really help a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I have, a, I'll confess you, I have a, a slight nightmare that occurs from time to time when I'm speaking and the congregation slowly all gets out and walks out one row at a time. So I know my insecurities. You know, people see you and they think, oh, he's, he's easy, it's easy. Every time you're standing in front of people, it's another time. And every time you know that if God doesn't show up, you're, you're, you're lost. 
and you're going to have egg on your face. Now, I've had a bit of egg on my face from time to time. I remember one time I was speaking in one big church and my, and my notes fluttered off down in <laughs> down to the congregation. <laughs> Got them. Oh, well, there you go. Never mind. So embarrassment. Uh, but still, I still find there are other areas where going up to talking to people where you hold back and you think, shall I, shall I, shall I say something? I don't quite know how to put it. You know, and you find yourself... And I, I feel God saying, you've got to live by faith. You've got to trust. So trust then. So I don't want to put the bar too high. We're not all going to get there like immediately. The moment you become a Christian, you will suddenly become super. Although I have found some people that have done that. You know, that step straight off and start living a high-octane Christian life. And that is available to us. And that's what God's Spirit wants for us. But if you don't quite make that quite such high-octane, don't despair. Seek to grow. Make steps as you go along. Final one, well not final one, fourth one, obedience. That's probably the most well-known uh, uh, family in the world, I suspect. Um, and uh, you may wonder why I put them up there. Well, I mean, in a sense, if obedience is inevitable. If you, if you believe in somebody and you trust them, then in the end they say, you know, if I say, Lord, I, tr I really trust you, and God says, okay, I want you to do that. That's what I've been already saying. If the Lord tells you to do it, you've got to do it. Uh, if you don't, you're not really, you know, so it follows through, really. Repent and believe and trust and obey are four interlinked steps in a chain that is a part of our receiving God's life belt to us. If we want to live it to the full, that's what involved. Now, why did I put them up there? <clears throat> Mainly because they are the one family in the world that we invest with loads of honour and, uh, and position and we give the men uniforms I mean, the women don't get uniforms. They do get nice dresses and tiaras and stuff like that. But we, one thing we never do is do what they tell us. You know, in fact, if they start trying to pontificate anything about anything, like Prince Charles, we all think, what's he doing? He's got no right to be saying all that kind of stuff. So they're kind of, they're lords, but without authority. So within our culture, I think it's hard for us to get our head around the idea of a lord that, that does have authority. And that seems to me what, what the, the Lord Jesus is. He, the, the early church declaration was Jesus is Lord. And that didn't mean that he was a kind of a, a, a titular head. He wasn't just a kind of a, a, a pretty uniform on that you did ceremonies around. I mean, half the church must be like that, uh, where we pay lip service to him and we put stained glass windows in his name, but do not do the things that he tells us to do. In Matthew 7, 21 to 23, he says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into my Father's kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. That's where the rubber hits the road. So there's kind of, it's not negotiable. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, he said in John 15, 10. So it's pretty, it's pretty strong stuff. In Matthew 7, uh, I, I think this, this one's worth reading because it, it demonstrates something that I think is pretty crucial. In, in Matthew 7, verse 24 uh, onwards, everyone that hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. In other words, anybody that obeys me is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against that house, but it did not fall because it has foundation on the rock. The man that hears my words and doesn't do them is like a man who builds his house on the sand. We got choruses about this. We tell children this. 
In other words, obedience is not an option. If you don't obey, in the end, you will pay. No pressure. Your house will fall down. You've got to hear these words of mine and do them. And as you do them, so your house will be well-founded. I, I don't know where I got that quote from. I think it might have been from me. It didn't look that clever now that I look at it. But, <laughs> but it seemed right at the time. We can't, we can't break God's laws without simply breaking ourselves upon God's laws. I mean, God, what God tells us to do is what is. That is, the, that is the reality of it. So we have to work out, we have to work out, first of all, what is the Lord telling me to do? And then we have to do it. Just a bit of a, a PS to that. Obedience doesn't come easily to us. We all know that. We all have our own way and our own will. And that's, that stuff that is, that is in us out of Adam has a way of keep wanting to pop back up. Our self-centered nature wrestles uh, constantly with, with, you know, I want to be free. I, I want to do my own thing. A lot of people would think, well, if you're going to become completely submitted to Jesus' will, isn't that a bit oppressive? Now, those of us that have committed ourselves to do that have to say, no, it's not oppressive at all. Actually, the only way that you can be free is to give your life to Jesus. That's just a, such a paradox, really. Such an irony. I mean, if I actually keep my life to myself and do what I want, I become enslaved. How weird is that? that? That is probably one of the greatest secrets of life. If you want to be free, give your life to the master and become his slave. And you'll be free. Okay, finally, going to rush through this. Are you okay so far? Yeah, good. <laughs> okay, baptism number five. Now, I mean, it's interesting that in Acts 2.38, Peter doesn't go through all that I've been telling you. He doesn't say repent and believe and trust and obey. He just says repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Uh, now, I mean, he does that because, as we say, the, the, you don't have to put all the stages down at any one time. It's good to have it in your head, but the Bible is quite loose with it. You know, sometimes they say repent and believe. Sometimes they say repent and be baptized. You know, sometimes they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all there, but they come differently at different times. But I think it's also due to the fact that baptism, to be baptized was itself an expression of all the others. You know, you wouldn't be baptized unless you were willing to buy into it, unless you were willing to put your trust, unless you were willing to, to put your faith in Jesus and to trust him and so on. So baptism expresses and seals the response. That's why it's like wedding. A wedding, you know, expresses the love of two people, seals it, and then launches them off into their life together. Okay, very quickly now. First of all, the baptism of Jesus. That leads us immediately into an interesting speculation. Um, why was Jesus baptized? Now, I would ask you that. If we, if we weren't televising it, I would ask you that, and we'd have a bit of a to and fro on it. But I mean, it is an interesting question. He was the son of God. He didn't have any sin to confess. What was he doing being baptized? John the Baptist said to him, what are you doing coming to me? You know, I need to be baptized by you. So let's just take a, a quick look at it in Matthew chapter 3 and verses 13 through to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So he doesn't, he doesn't actually say why, he just says this is right. This needs to be. And then John consented. 
And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Okay, so why was Jesus baptized? I'm going to suggest to you three possible reasons. Number one, as an example, to set, I mean, to actually set the trend, as it were. Um, and, and I've sometimes found when people say, well, do I really have to be baptised? I mean, how important is it to be? Surely what I decide in my heart is the most important thing. And you have to say, well, Jesus thought it was important. So you, why, why would it not be important for you? Whatever else it may or may not be, it seems to me that to follow Jesus' example in this is a good thing to do. So I would certainly say it, it, it makes a very strong example. And Jesus always made, went first. He, he led by example. He, he led by doing it. Secondly, it was an act of identification. All these people were going forward and confessing their sins and standing and, and seeking cleansing to get ready for the Messiah coming. And Jesus comes and stands among the sinners that becomes one with the sinners that are confessing their sins. Isn't that a brilliant thing? Isn't that exactly what he would do? I mean, supremely, of course, that happened on the cross when he became so identified with sinful men and women. And it's interesting that he actually called the, the cross a baptism. I have a baptism to be baptized with. You know, this was his first baptism when he stood among the sinners. The second baptism was in blood on the cross where he stood among the sinners and he took all our stuff on his shoulders and bore it for us and cleansed us through it. So I think that's got to be pretty high up on what he was, and that's specific, that's specific to him, that's not, you know, we can't imitate that or follow that. Uh, thirdly, however, I think it was also an act of commitment. It was him saying, Father, here I am. Uh, it came at a sta stage in his life when he'd, he'd done his preparation, he'd done it, he was ready, and he came forward knowing that the time was fulfilled, the time was at hand, and he came forward, and at that moment, the voice came from heaven, says, my beloved son, the Spirit came upon him and he then went out into the fullness of the Spirit, into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. The total act of baptism and infilling and, uh, and affirmation by the Father, then followed by the temptation in the wilderness, was then, he then came forth in the power of the Holy Spirit to do the deeds of the kingdom that he came come to do. So that his baptism was very much a threshold. It was the, it was the, the, the launch pad into the life that God had called him to do. Up until then, far as we know, he'd done no public ministry, he'd done no miracles, he'd done no teaching, so this became his beginning. It's as if God is waiting for him to come and say, here I am, Father, ready now. And that, I think, does have a, quite a, a deep you know, application for all of us you know, that, that, that say, I've got so far, you know, you've, I've done that, done that, done that, done that, and maybe have not yet got to this point, and maybe the Lord is waiting for you to get to that point. Okay, so let's follow it through. Uh, the command of Jesus was to go into, um, into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And one of the things I always say to people that have come from an Anglican background, I don't want to be controversial, is that that uh, instruction is very specific. Go and, and, uh, and teach them, preach them, and teach them, and baptise them in that order. Um, 
what the church did early on was, of course, to reverse that order and say, well, we'll baptise them first, just in case, and then we'll teach them and disciple them later. Not been a good thing. It's taken away the sense of being born again uh, out of, out of being, becoming a Christian. You know, when the baptism and the, and the new birth come together, they reinforce one another and reinforce. Now, born-again Christians have become a, a sort of a, a special kind. Actually, in the Bible, there are only born-again Christians. We're all born-again Christians. But the church historically has lost a bit of that, I, I fear. Okay, so <clears throat> they took that commandment very seriously. In Acts 2.41, we're told that they, there were 3,000 people that were saved in that day, and they were all baptised. That would have been a hard job. That would have needed some strong arms to go ahead with that. I don't know where they did it. Um, I guess probably in one of the pools in Jerusalem. But what a massive undertaking that was. If ever there could have been a day when they might have said, well, let's leave it a bit. You know, let's take it as red. Okay, guys, you're all Christians. Hey, diddly dee, that's fine. Uh, they didn't do that, though. They, they, that, they baptized them all in that day. In Acts 8, 36 to 38, uh, in the middle of nowhere, they meet an Ethiopian that is on his thing, and Philip is talking to him and, uh, and engaging him. And, and the guy, the guy, the going past says, look, there's some water. What's to stop me being baptized? And, uh, you know, he didn't say, well, I've got to hold a meeting. You know, let's, let's, let's gather a group together. Let's have a proper service. And I need to preach a sermon and stuff like that. He said, let's do it. And so there they were. In the, and he must have said, he must have said to, at some point to the Ethiopian, this is part of the package. You know, if you, if you become a follower of Jesus, you're baptised into him, into his name, and so on. Interesting too, in many cultures, one of the things in Islamic cultures, if you're baptised, you know, as a Muslim into Jesus, that is when you're really in trouble. So they definitely do see a significant, I was going to say a significant significance. That doesn't sound quite right, but you see what I mean. They do see something very significant in it. And here there's Ethiopian baptised in the middle of nowhere. In Acts 16, the passage we've already read, uh, the jailer, I mean, they've had an earthquake. Uh, the guy has, uh, has, has taken them all out of prison. I don't know who's looking after the prison by this time. And there he and his whole family are baptised that night. So they didn't hang around. They did it. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptise them. And that's what they did everywhere they went. So what a, that's my granddaughter. So I thought I'd put that up there. A bit of a family snap uh, being baptised. What is the meaning of baptism? Um, well, number one, a public witness to Jesus. <clears throat> it's an opportunity for me to make a stand and to say publicly whose I am. And as I say, I usually like to add into that bit of a word of testimony. Not compulsory, but I do try to do that. However, I'm responsible for doing it. Uh, there is a, a passage in Romans, but there are other passages as well. But this one in Romans says, if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you will be saved. So it seems as if Jesus doesn't want us to be secret disciples. He wants us to be out there and public. Perhaps sometimes we get too secret as we go along. But certainly we, we're not meant to start that way. We're meant to start publicly. And we've found certainly where people you know, are baptised, they invite their family, friends, people, neighbours, come along and it gives them a real opportunity to say to everybody, this is where I am, this is where I stand. Secondly, it's an offering of my life to Jesus. Just as Jesus came to God and said, here I am, Father, it seems to me that God is wanting for us to do that, to actually come forward and say, here I am, this is my life. And I can so clear, I was only 13 and a half, nearly 14 years old. And I remember standing at that baptism, such a, an overwhelming sense of peace 
and beauty spread over me, complete surprise to me. I was not expecting that to happen, but I knew that at that moment, my life and my destiny and all my hopes and expectations changed radically uh, because God had taken me to himself as I had offered my life to him. Baptism saves you as the pledge of a good conscience to God. In 1 Peter 3, it's, so it's kind of like a pledge. Here is my life, Lord. Here, I'm giving it to you. And then uh, thirdly, it is an outward demonstration of spiritual reality. Um, and I, I, this to me is so neat. I mean, there is such a lot symbolized in the, in the water. And it, I've got three things here. Number one, washing. That's pretty well obvious. Um, you know, we don't have any soap in there or a bathtub or anything like that. But the water is very plain. That when we become followers of Jesus, God cleanses us and purifies us by the blood of Jesus and that symbolizes us that we are clean. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins and forgive us for all our iniquities. So that's an ongoing thing, but that starts when we become disciples. We are clean, new people. Secondly, it symbolizes burying. We're buried with him in baptism. That's why it's so important, I think, to immerse people under the water. The old life is gone, finished, dead. You can't have your new life until you let go of the old life. And it seems to me it symbolizes that, that complete letting go uh, of the life that I had so that I can receive the new life, the resurrection life uh, that Jesus wants to give me. And thirdly, it symbolizes the empowering, the, the, uh, the baptism in the Holy Spirit that is also part of the package. We'll say more about that if we get round to doing the third series a little bit later on. But I mean, you know that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus when he was there in the water and he went forth then therein in the power of the Holy Spirit. If the Son of God needed a special anointing and impartation of the Holy Spirit, how much more do we? And the word is, is deliberately used the same word. The word baptism, I mean, the word baptism is an ordinary Greek word for soaking somebody. You know, in, in, they could say, I just went out in the rain the other day and I got completely baptized. Now, we couldn't say that because we've made baptizo, the Greek baptizo, we've made it a special word. But it's not a special word. It just means a word for soaking somebody. So as we're soaked in water, God wants to soak us in his spirit. And as our life is opened, his spirit is able to flow around us and over us and in us. So we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So it, all of this is summed up. Is that, I mean, is that not brilliant? Is that brilliant that God in one ceremony um, in it were, demonstrates the essence of what it is to be born again, born anew, come into the kingdom and enter into his, uh, into his family? We are, we, are, uh, we are made new, we are washed, uh, we are given a fresh life, and we are empowered by the Spirit of God upon us. Amen. Good, that's it. So there are five uh, steps that we put down there. So where do we stand in all of this? <clears throat> well, uh, I would, certainly when I've talked to people and counseled people through the years, really, with uh, become, coming into the kingdom, becoming a follower of Jesus. I've tried never to push or pressure people, so I wouldn't do that now. But for us to actually review and say, so repentance is number one. Am I happy to do that? Uh, am I willing for that kind of vulnerability? Have I already done that? Where am I at that? That's good. Secondly, belief. 
Do I believe? Have I got doubts there? Do I have things I can talk about and question? Do I believe in the essence? Even if I haven't got everything sorted and you know sorted out, am I am I happy with the key that Jesus is Lord and He is risen and alive and I can follow Him and love Him and walk with Him? Thirdly, am I willing to trust to live? Uh, somebody said faith is spelled R-I-S-K, and there's something to be said for that. That you know to embrace that as a value. Uh, to live on the edge uh, where we can. Uh, and then obedience, to say, Lord, I'm, my life is in your hands. I will do what you tell me to do. Um, am, I, am I happy to go there? And uh, then finally, baptism. Uh, if I haven't already done that, am I thinking that maybe that's a step that I need to take? How do, how do, what must I do to be saved? Well, we started saying, not much. You may say, well, that's quite a lot. But all of that really to me is just receiving what God has given us. God has done the hard job. God has cleansed our sins. God has given us an open way. God has made a way into heaven. Uh, God has, has, has done everything so that we might become sons and daughters of the living God. He's given to us a future and a hope and a permanent pardon. What more could he do? But we do need to receive it in a real way. To the extent towards we receive it, we will know his blessing and life and power upon us. If we only half receive it, as Jesus said, the parable of the sower, you know, sometimes the seed goes deep and bears fruit, sometimes it sits on the surface, sometimes it gets choked by the cares of the world. So we need it, we want it to, for, for God's seed to go deep into us. And the purpose of this course is hopefully to encourage folk to think seriously and then in their time to make their own commitment and response. Bless you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that Jesus came into the world to save men and women like us. I thank you that the price has been paid, that there is now no debt, no obligation, nothing left to do except to receive. And so, Father, we thank you that you've laid out a way whereby we can receive from you, receive your Holy Spirit, walk in the dynamic new life of the kingdom of God, and so, Father, we ask that you would help us this night to, to ponder, to respond, and to receive as you lead and direct us, because we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for the questions. I wasn't sure whether we get any questions tonight, so I thought it was all cut and dried and simple. But, uh, but there are some, uh, some good ones here. First question, do you have to be baptised in water to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? No. Certainly in the, in the scripture, you've got, um, I think at the home of the, is it Cornelius? Come on, guys. Yeah, it is. It's that Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. And I mean, the, 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 the apostles are quite surprised about that. They didn't expect that to happen. And I think one, it's interesting to do a study through the Acts of the Apostles and see the immense variety of the way that God works. So you can't really tie God down to one particular formula, which is great. I mean, I think it's helpful for us sometimes, if you're sharing with somebody, to have an idea, which is why I've tried to give you a structure. But in practice, God does things wonderfully um, differently every time. Okay? Question number two, if you have been baptised and accepted Christ before, do you need to be rebaptized to be born again? 
That depends a little bit on what you think about your previous baptism. I was baptised in a Church of England when I was 12. Now that might have been meaningful, but it wasn't. Uh, my mum had sent me to a Baptist church and I knew that the Baptist church baptised people by full immersion and there was no way that I wanted to do that. So I thought if I got baptised in the C of E in a nice safe, it would help me to dodge the thing that the Baptist did. And my mum had just had another baby and she wanted that baby to be christened and so she wanted myself and my sister to be baptised in the Church of England to be done properly and I fully agreed with that because I was trying to dodge having to be obedient to God. You see, it was only about a year and a half later that I was baptised by immersion as a believer and that was a different experience. So a lot depends on, on what manner of baptism it was, what your motives were for it, but if if you were baptised as a part of being born again, then I would say, no, you don't need to. If it was a token and something that you just went through as a performance, then I would say you may well uh, want to revisit that. I mean, generally speaking, we hold to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but I don't know whether that totally means that, you know what I mean, you can't go through the kind of process, particularly where it didn't have any meaning the first time that you did it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Conway said, what about if you're dying in the desert, you come to faith and uh, there's no water there, would you, you know, you can't possibly have to be baptised in order to become a believer. Of course not. And the thief on the cross is, of course, another classic demonstration of that, who Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, so I mean, I think God much more is concerned about the thought of a heart. I mean, God knows when a heart turns towards him. So you, you would have to say that, uh, in one sense, baptism is important, but it's important because it seals everything else that you've done. If you haven't done all the other things, then it is much more limited in its significance. I mean, some people would hold that baptism is a sacrament and therefore it has significance, whatever meaning and heart is put into it, because God puts all the heart into it. But it seems, seems to me that there may be a truth in that, but it's still important that it has meaning for us. And uh, so it's not just something that you can go through and do and rely on that doing the trick. Which, of course, is why loads of people have their children done, you know, or have traditionally had their children done, because they thought, if I have them done, they'll be okay. Okay, Muslims pledge a life to Allah and trust that that gets them to heaven. I'm, I don't know whether, that's, whether it quite happens like that, but uh, Christians pledge a life to Christ to get to heaven. So how do you answer? Um, how do you answer that? That Jesus is the oh, how do you answer that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Because um, <clears throat> he said so. Um, uh, Allah did not say that. Far as I know, Allah didn't say, I am the way, the truth and the life and no one gets to the Father but by me. So although they've, they've been put together as comparisons here, they're not really comparable. If I knew more about it, I could probably uh, demonstrate a whole lot more and some of you may know more uh, of the differences that there are. But the, the short answer, I think, is we believe in Jesus because first of all, he said he is the way, the truth and the life. Secondly, he was crucified and died and gave his life as a ransom for many and he has made the sacrifice that no one else could make. He made that sacrifice for uh, Muhammad as well as Buddha and all these other characters 
whether they avail themselves of it or not. So he stands head and shoulders. If you want to look at, again at that, that's, question, that's number two on the way up course, which is online, so you can get to that one. Okay, question number four. There is a baptism of water. There is also a baptism of fire. And I've heard about a baptism of the Spirit when you start speaking in tongues. What are your thoughts on this topic? How does one get all three baptisms? Oh, well, nice, easy one to finish. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, I don't, I'm not totally sure on the baptism of fire, except insofar as that might be a baptism of suffering. I mean, as we said, Jesus, Jesus said, I have a baptism to, baptize, to be baptised with, speaking about his cross, and that was definitely a baptism of fire and blood and suffering. And so I, that, that seems to me, that might be what's in mind there. Um, but I'm not sure on that, so, you know, you might have to come back at me at that. Uh, the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of water we've already alluded to, um, there's a bit of debate about this, and as I say, I'm... If you carry on asking these sorts of questions, I'll have to do the, the, next, the, <laughs> the next series through when we've recovered from this one uh, on that whole issue. That is a big subject. Um, the, the word baptism in the spirit is a very powerful um, uh, word, you, but it's only used five times in the scripture, which is interesting. Uh, and again, the scripture uses words interchangeably. I mean, the day of Pentecost is spoken of as being baptised in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit and receiving the Spirit. So it's quite difficult to build a theology on those exact terms that are used. If we concentrate on the essence of it, Jesus said, you shall receive the, you know, when the Spirit comes on, you shall receive the Holy Spirit you shall, um, and power, shall, that's it, you shall, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And I tend to encourage Christians to look for power rather than individual manifestations. However, speaking in tongues is certainly one of them, uh, one of the signs of the Holy Spirit's um, enabling, empowering, and baptism. And, I mean, and people receive the Holy Spirit tongues gift in different ways. Uh, I've known some people that have just, have just experienced the Spirit speaking in tongues like a torrent, like a flood that has just poured over them and they're kind of overwhelmed with it. But I've come across other people that have just said, Lord, in faith, I'm going to begin to use a language that you give me and have spoken it out. And, uh, and as they've done so, God has filled their lips and given them a language to praise him and to speak to him. Uh, Jackie Pullinger, I remember, who did massive work um, in Hong Kong some years ago, said that she, everything was going a bit flat for her and she realised that she hadn't really prayed in the Spirit, I think as she put it, or spoken in tongues for quite a while and she determined that she would actually every day, by will, she would take 10 minutes, quarter of an hour, something like that, she would just praise God in a language that God gave her and she tells how nothing immediately happened dramatically, but then slowly over a period, the whole level of her ministry and life increased and took on a new dimension of power. So I, I feel personally that we need to be seeking everything that God will give to us, frankly. And, uh, and if I, I, again, I probably mustn't share too much because I might say it again, but just in case I don't, um, in my own church, um, I had for quite a long time practiced speaking in another language that God gave me privately and in tongues, but no way was I going to do that in public. 
And I remember we had a church weekend and, uh, and I was still feeling it because exercise, because our church had not broken out and people had not got thrown freely uh, in gifts and revelations and speaking what God was saying to them. And, uh, and I was saying to the speaker, everybody was in groups and I was sitting there with the speaker and I was saying, you know, I do sometimes wonder if I should do something myself. And the speaker said, well, maybe you should. And then every, all the groups where we were having coffee, we were coming for the final communion. And, uh, and one, of the, one of my deacons said, Bobby said, we've been praying for you in our group. Well, that sends a shiver down a pastor's spine, that does. Um, and uh, and uh, he said, we feel that unless you step out and speak in a tongue, uh, none of us will. No pressure. And uh, remember, I'd never done that in public at all. And there was always a voice inside me saying, it's just, made, it's just gobbledygook, you just made it up. And uh, anyway, I, I went into that communion service thinking, well, Lord, I think you've told me I've got to do something. And so I, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, well, okay, well, let, let, maybe it'll warm up a bit. You know, you know, something happened and something like that, and then I'll do it. And it, it just didn't. It all went quiet. You know, it was an open time. People were invited to share. And, uh, and so I, I'm, so I'm going to do it. I might get the sack. They might think I'm completely mad. I'm just going to do it. Whatever words come into my head, I'm just going to speak. And uh, I just spoke them out. It felt like about half an hour, um, which you might not be surprised at the length of time I take talking, but it wasn't. It was probably about 30 seconds. I mean, Debbie was there. And, um, and as soon as I finished speaking, I sat down and thought, well, that's good. Well, I've, I've obeyed God. I don't know what's going to happen about that. And then uh, the speaker was there that weekend. He came up, he stood up and gave an interpretation. And, and he, it was something like, it was a prayer. And he said, I feel that I'm walking on the edge of a precipice at any minute, I'm going to fall off. I thought, boy, that is so, that is so what I was saying. Um, and it went on. I, can, I only can remember that first bit of it. But that, he, he prayed that, um, that interpretation. And then the whole place um, was electrified. Like... People were sharing things. People I'd not thought of as particularly charismatic were sharing things. There was a, a, there was a sense of Pentecost came down. Church weekend, there were maybe 100 people from our church on the weekend. But what I didn't know, a lady had come in at, at that point who'd been out the back and um, she was weeping in the back row. And... and uh, in the evening, we had a service in the evening, that evening, and she came to see me in my, in my study at the end of the service. She said, can I come and see you? I said, sure you can. She came in to talk to me and she said, she said, how did you know? I said, I beg your pardon? She said, how did you know? And I said, tell me your story. She said, well, I've, I've, I've been finding the whole weekend a bit intense, you know, a bit too much for me. And I've been out of it. And then somebody had gone back out to, to, you know, find me and bring me in for the sort of final communion and got me there. And she said, I came in when you began to speak in that tongue. And, uh, and then the interpretation came, she said, and uh, how did you know? And I said, I didn't know, what? She said, and she told me the story. She'd, she'd been involved with a man at work. She was contemplating an affair and leaving her husband. And this word came forth, um, 
I feel that I'm walking on the edge of a precipice. At any minute, I'm going to fall off. And she said, it hit me right. She said, I thought God saw my soul and knew me. And, uh, and I mean, to cut a long story short, that she finished that relationship with that guy at work and that brought an immediate transformation. It was a lesson to me, because here am I bumbling along like a complete oaf, having no idea, um, you know, I'm, all I'm thinking about is just trying to obey God and be faithful. And, uh, and suddenly that happens. And so the, the whole combination of it sold me on it. I've never regularly um, spoken in tongues publicly, occasionally when God really pushes me. Um, others have the gift more. But I think certainly if any of us are uncertain about that, uh, as, a, as a ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, you certainly don't need to be afraid. It can be misused and abused. All the gifts can be abused and misused. But what we need, of course, is not to ban them, but to... Uh, give right usage and so on. I mean, my feeling is that in a sense, it's the reverse gift of, of, of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, God gave a gift of languages to all the peoples of the world and they all came from God. The whole, he is the master of languages. So at Pentecost, God reversed it and gave languages in order to unite people rather than to divide them. And so it was a sign gift of the new age of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and um, there you go. So that's it. I don't know whether I answered that question adequately, but you've had most of my life story tonight, so I'll probably do. Bless you all.